You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, I Am, examining the I Am statements of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is John 11, verses 25 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to a, to a living hope, incorruptible, unfading, and undefiled, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Father, we thank you that you are keeping us by the power of God, the same power that you displayed when you raised Jesus from the dead. And so we praise you that you are the giver of life who breathes life into our spiritual lungs. And some of us this morning, Father, need to be reminded of that life because we feel dead. Or we are aware of the prospect of death. So we pray that by the supernatural power of your spirit that you would speak through the preaching of your word and breathe life into the hearts of your people through it. And remind the devil that while death is our enemy, Jesus has conquered both him and death. And so Lord, help me to preach your word, to lift my voice and preach it as if Jesus is alive because he is. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead so that those who witnessed the miracle would believe in him and receive the gift of eternal life. As John chapter 11 verse 25 says, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And everyone who believes in him will receive eternal life, even if he physically dies. Brothers and sisters, this is both a powerful and an encouraging word. Because death is in fact certain. It even seems final. And it reminds us that something is profoundly wrong with the world because of sin. Even Paul says in Romans chapter 5, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even before there was a giving of the law, there was still death because there was sin. Funeral homes, for example, are all throughout the city. And people die every day. One day, our bodies, have you thought about this? Perhaps I have too much. 
our bodies will be in a funeral home, cremated, or put into the ground to rest in peace. Unless Jesus Christ returns first, we all will be stung by the sting of death. And some of us feel that sting even now. I know I feel it. For example, in 1989, the only man I ever called daddy was my grandfather, and he died a horrible death because of cancer. I remember that morning like it was yesterday when my auntie, who's also now with the Lord, told me that daddy is dead. I was bitten in the sixth grade by the sting of death. In 1996, a dear friend of mine died in a tragic car accident when she was only 17 years old. Yes, the Lord used her death to be the means, obviously the gospel is the primary means, but the human means by which he brought me to faith in Christ was her death. But my friend, she tragically died. It's devastating to me and to many in our small community. In 1996, a few weeks later, another friend and fellow high school senior died from another tragic car accident. In 1998, my pastor's son, at the age of 16, died of a cardiac arrest at baseball practice. In 1998, another friend, a mother in the Christian faith, she died in her 40s. She was struck by a semi-truck. Fast forward to 2013, my wife and I lost a baby, a baby that we can never hold in this life or touch. In 2018, my beloved aunt, who raised me like I was her very own son, she died a long and horrific death, and I was privileged to be with her through every stage of her death. Fast forward to 2020, my wife and I once again lost our second child to a tubal pregnancy, and she almost lost her life because of that tubal pregnancy. We were stung by the sting of death. In 2022, my neighbor died because of COVID. Brothers and sisters, death stings, doesn't it? And perhaps you're thinking, thank God, Jarvis does not write Christmas cards. <laughs> yes, but I have better news than that. As Christians, we know that while death stings, it is not final. Because Jesus Christ died and resurrected from the dead. The crucifixion of Jesus stings. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stings. A mother watching her son experiencing a first century lynching. Stings. Death is part of the redemptive story. But death is not the final part of that story. Because Jesus conquered death Here's my main point of the text. It's very simple. Because Jesus is God, 
He gives eternal life to everyone who follows him so that even if we physically die, we live forever. I'm going to basically walk through the text, summarize the story, and give you some applications in the end. So here we go. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in order to show the glory of God so that those who witnessed the miracle would in fact believe in him and receive eternal life. And this miracle, this raising of Lazarus from the dead, is the last of these signs that he's been performing in the gospel of John in order to show that he in fact is Yahweh in the flesh. We know from John chapter 10 that Jesus was preaching in the beyond the Jordan in verse 40. Chapter 11, verse 1, we get the context for the resurrection of Lazarus of the dead. John tells us that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, was sick in a town called Bethany in Judea. Verse 1 tells us Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary was the sister who anointed and washed Jesus' feet with her hair, verse 2. The sisters sent word to Jesus that his friend was ill, in verse 3. Jesus hears these words in verse 4, and he tells his disciples that Lazarus' sickness would not result in his death. But instead, Lazarus' sickness would result in the glory of God, being manifested through it. Once Jesus heard that Lazarus was, Lazarus was sick, he, he does what I think is a strange thing in verses 6 and 7. If you follow Jesus' ministry in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, when people are sick, Jesus will go to them and heal them, or he will heal them from a distance. But in the case of Lazarus, he doesn't immediately go to Bethany, but instead he lets his friend die. Verses 8 through 16 tell us that. And Lazarus, we know, uh, he's dead for four days when Jesus shows up. But, but his disciples think that, that Lazarus is only asleep because Jesus said that this death or this sickness will not result in death. But Jesus makes it plain in verse 14, and he says emphatically, Lazarus is dead. He's not sleeping, literally. He's dead. In verse 15, he then says that he rejoices that Lazarus has died, not because Jesus lacks compassion. In a moment, we'll see he weeps at his tomb, right? He rejoices because he knows that his death will result in a greater miracle. When he raises Lazarus from the dead and those who see the miracle, many of them, not all, would believe. In verse 17, Jesus arrives in Bethany after Lazarus had been dead for four days. Verses 18 and 19 assert that many of Lazarus' friends were with Martha and Mary, comforting them in their grief. And let me tell you this if you don't know it. Grief in the first century Jewish context was an event. None of these one-day funerals in ancient Judaism. They mourned for days. They had been mourning at least for four days. And when Jesus shows up, they're still mourning. In fact, that's why one of the sisters likely stays behind and only one goes to meet him because she was being comforted in her, in her grief. 
Well, Martha, she hears that Jesus is, is near the town. She runs to him in verse 20. She meets him and says this in verse 21. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. You know, that's true, isn't it? She's not throwing shade on Jesus. She's stating a cold fact. When Jesus showed up at the home of sick people, he healed them. And when Jesus, by the way, showed up at funerals, he ruined the funeral by raising the dead person from the dead. Just read the Gospels. She recognizes that this man has the ability to keep her brother from death. So I don't think she has a crisis of faith. I don't think she's like, well, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I don't think that's what she's saying. Because in a moment she says, I know you can do all things. And whatever God, whatever you ask God, he's going to do it. But I do think, however, she's, she doesn't fully grasp what Jesus is going to do. She's similar in this regard to Nicodemus. While Nicodemus was an unbelief, and Martha is not an unbelief, she's similar to Nicodemus and to the woman at the well in John 4. In this regard, Jesus is thinking about spiritual birth in John 3. Nicodemus is thinking about physical birth. Jesus is thinking about eternal life in John chapter 4. The woman at the well is thinking about actual water to drink. So one of the things we see in her remarks to Jesus is, is that she, yes, on the one hand, she has faith, but on the other hand, she doesn't understand that there's something greater coming. And so Jesus or she, rather, says to Jesus in verse 42, even now I know, verse 22, excuse me, even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. Sure, you could have kept him from death if you were here, but you were not. But I know that you're, because you're here now, God's going to do something. Verse 23, Jesus said to Martha, listen, your brother's going to rise again. And she said, look, I know Jesus. I know what the scriptures say. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She was a good Jewish woman. Most Jews, not all, most Jews believed in the physical resurrection from the dead. You have your exceptions. But most people believe, Jewish people that is, in the first century believed that in the last day, in the age to come, there would be a bodily, physical resurrection because they knew their Hebrew Bibles well. She recognizes that God is going to give her brother a resurrected body. And Jesus says, that's already here in part. Verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this statement, these I am statements we've been talking about for several weeks, Jesus is emphasizing something very important about his identity. He's emphasizing that he is Yahweh in the flesh. Now, let me do some theology for a, for a moment. May I do some theology for a moment? There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus Christ, hear this carefully, is not the Father. He's the preexistent Son who became a Jewish man. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The preexistent son does not become a God at the incarnation. 
the preexistent Son, who was always God, with God, the Father, became a Jewish man. This is one reason why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, when you see me working, the Father is working. When you, I am the Father, we are one. They're not the same people. There's Father, there's Son, there's Spirit. There's one God in a perfect Trinitarian union who are different in their person, but they share the same essence. They share the same God stuff. I'm going to borrow here from a New Testament scholar. They, they share in divine identity. Jesus is saying that he shares in Yahweh's divine identity as the pre-existent son who has become a man. Let me make it plain. I mean, I was preaching years ago at a church, and I said something about the Trinity that frankly wasn't clear. There was a brother on the first, first row. He said, make it plain, Doc. Make it plain. So Doc's going to make it plain. <laughs> Jesus is not God Jr. He's fully God. As the Son. Who raises the dead in the Old Testament? God does. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God gave life. His point is like what you find in Exodus chapter 3, chapters 3 and 4, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. The Lord says, go back to Egypt and deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses says, whom shall I say has sent me? And the Lord says, say, I am has sent me. Jesus is saying to us, he is the I am. He is part of Yahweh's divine identity. He is the eternal son. He shares in, in all the God stuff as the, the son. Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus says to her, do you believe this? Let me clarify something. He, he doesn't mean that everyone who trusts in him will never experience physical death. Two reasons. One, he's going to res resurrect a dead person from the dead who believed in him. Two, Jesus himself died. He means, on the other hand, that the one who trusts in him shows loyalty to him. That's what faith is. Faith is not simply affirming some truths about Jesus. There were people who saw the fact of the resurrection and walked away in unbelief. In fact, they plotted to execute him. So he cannot simply mean, oh, there are going to be some people who see what I've done, and they're going to say, yep, he raised him from the dead, and that's faith. No, genuine saving faith, genuine belief is a, an affirmation of the propositions about Jesus and a commitment to those propositions until you die. No, we're not perfect, but we are faithful. Like Abraham, not perfect. <laughs> Perhaps that's an understatement, but he's not perfect. But he's presented as, a, as an example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So Jesus is saying to us and to her, those who follow me, Martha, even if they die, 
They live forever. Let's say a word about eternal life as we press on through the story. Or for, for, one, for one moment, I'm going to say seven things about eternal life. Very quickly, but seven things nevertheless. Eternal life in the Gospel of John is already here, but it's not yet fully realized. Number one, it refers to the forgiveness of sins that we have the moment we trust in Jesus by faith. John chapter 1, verse 29 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's eternal life. That God has removed your sins from you and he has counted them against Jesus and has given to you Jesus' righteousness. Feel the weight of that this morning. You're not waiting to have your sins forgiven if you follow Jesus. You have them forgiven right now in Christ if you believe. Second, eternal life refers to regeneration. The new birth. John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He means you must be born from above. He means God must Ezekiel 36 and 37 you. He must work in your heart by his spirit, awaken your dead spiritual heart, and give you life so that you have the eyes of faith to respond to Jesus in obedience. Third, eternal life refers to trusting in Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Four, eternal life refers to a future bodily resurrection. John chapter 5, there's coming a day when those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Brothers and sisters, I feel this as I get older. I'm 45 now. I feel death chasing me more than I felt it at 25. There's coming a day when I will receive a resurrected body, a glorified body. No more knee pains, no more bones popping when I wake up in the morning. No more going to the weight room trying to fight against 45-year-old stuff. I'm sorry, I'm, this is not my therapy sessions. Let me stop here. But I feel 45. But there's coming a day when this 45, well, hopefully it's not when I'm 45 years old, but there's coming a day when this man will receive a resurrected body. Just like Jesus's body. And you have that promise in Christ. No more hospice care. No more funeral homes. No more goodbyes. I hate funerals. No more tubal pregnancies. No more kidney disease. No more loss of precious life. Because the dead will be physically raised. Five, eternal life is also the indwelling presence of the Spirit. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus stood up 
And he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, John tells us, about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Six, eternal life is something we possess right now. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When I woke up this morning, I didn't feel like I had eternal life. I felt tired. I felt anxious about the sermon. I felt anxious about the weight of the, of the preaching moment and the responsibility. And yet, the fact of the matter is, my experience, my emotions, they're real. But they don't determine the reality of life that we have in Jesus. Amen? Maybe you feel sick today. Maybe you are discouraged. Maybe you feel depressed. Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you fear the future. The certainty of your eternal life is not based upon any of those circumstances changing. We pray they change. But the certainty of eternal life is rooted in the objective work of Jesus Christ on your behalf via the cross and the resurrection and your personal conversion experience by faith and the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit in your life. So when your body gets old, and young people, you're going to get old. Or when the devil tempts you to despair and reminds you of your guilt within. Or when things don't work out the way you hope, even if you put in the work, and you should put in the work. Remember, your circumstances don't change the certainty of the life you have in Jesus. You have it right now if you believe. Seventh and finally. By finally, I don't mean the sermon's over. I mean these seven (laughs) things about eternal life is over. Believing in God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, that's eternal life. John 17, verse 3. So when Jesus proclaims to Mary, to Martha, and then later on to Mary, that he is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in him will receive eternal life, I think he means at least these things. Maybe more, but at least these things. So The good news of the gospel is... We belong to Jesus, and we have eternal life now, and this eternal life will carry us through death to resurrection and to the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. So Jesus then asked Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? That's my question for you and for me. Do we believe this? Do we believe this during election season? Do we believe this when there's racial injustice? Do we believe this during income tax season? Do we believe this when challenges come our way? Well, Martha believed it. And by the way, praise God for faithful sisters in Christ. Amen? 
Praise God for faithful brothers, but let me just honor sisters for a moment. There are a lot of faithful sisters in this church who love Jesus and who serve him well. And on behalf of the elders, I didn't ask permission to do this. I hope this is okay. On behalf of the elders, I was going to say, praise God for you faithful sisters who serve Jesus faithfully here. In leadership, in ways consistent with the scriptures, and this sister shows she has great faith. She says, yes, verse 27, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I, be I believe what the, what the Jewish scriptures say. I know that Messiah is coming, and I know that you're that Messiah. So in verses 28 and 32, through 32, Mary, the other sister, rushes out to meet Jesus. And she basically says the same thing to him as Martha. Verses 32 and 33 suggest that because of the thickness of her grief and the sorrow of the moment, Jesus heard Mary's words and he became moved in his spirit. In verse, 20, uh, verse 34, he asked where Lazarus was buried. In verse 35, I love this line, it says, when they told him, Jesus wept. I want to sit here for a moment. Notice how right doctrine should lead to right living. Jesus knew very well as God. He's about to raise this man from the dead. But when he showed up, he didn't show up dropping Romans 8.28 on him. Romans wasn't written then, that's one reason. But he doesn't show up quoting the Psalms to her. He sits with the sisters and those grieving in their grief. Oh, yes, there's a time, and there's a time in the story, for theological truth to happen. But in my moment of grief, when I was in that hospital room with my wife, what I needed was not for someone texting me Romans 8.28. I needed physical bodies in my present weeping with me. And thank God I had that. Sometimes one of the most spiritual things we can do when people are grieving is to show up and to shut up. And to sit with them in their grief. Don't act like Job's friends. Don't come at me like that. I'll have to correct you in my grief if you do that. There's a time to be quoting verses to me, all right? I know those verses. Let me give you another example. When my aunt was in hospice, oh, it was so awful. Awful. The people at the hospital were great. But the process, death is an enemy, isn't it? I had colleagues who came to my aunt's room. I loved them for this. And I said, I know God is sovereign over all this. But why won't, why won't he just take her to be with Jesus? She gave her life to Christ six weeks before she died. Why is he making me wait? My colleagues didn't look at me and say, well, you know, in Romans 8, 28, they didn't say anything put their arms around me, and they wept. Pastor Jamal came to that room too. That brother sat by that bedside and just lamented with me. It's the most profound thing he could have done. And there were moments where, where the gospel was reinforced in my thinking. I mean, I preached John 3.16 at her funeral after all. 
I was reading scripture to her before she died and even when she was unconscious. But my point is, is that sometimes the best thing we can do is just be present with the meal, with the hug, or with tears. According to verse 36, some at the tomb honored Jesus because of his love for Lazarus. They saw him weeping. They said, look how much you loved him. Now, some of them also scoffed. And they said, well, the man who healed the sick, can he heal this person? And, and the way they asked the question suggests that they knew he could. So that then raises the question, well, why did he let him die? Verse 39, Jesus commands them to remove the stone from the tomb. And, and Martha says, Jesus, no, you, you can't do this because there's going to be a potent smell. He's been dead for four days. Do you see, by the way, that John is emphasizing this is not a, a resuscitation, this is a resurrection. Some of y'all seminary students don't come at me saying, well, you know, Jarvis, actually, if it were a resurrection. No, 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 it was a resurrection. That's why the narrative emphasizes over and over again the man's dead. That's why he comes out of the tomb stinking <laughs> with dead clothes, dead people's clothes on. So they remove the stone away from the tomb. Jesus cries out in verse 44, says Lazarus, or verse 43, Lazarus, come out. And out Lazarus comes, dressed like a dead man, because dead people in the first century had a certain way of dressing as they were wrapped up in a body. And they removed the garments from him. And he went on his way. Now, verse 45 is actually the, the main point of the story here. It's the climax of the story. This is, this is everything to which the narrative, I think, is pointing in verse 45. Many, verse 45, of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, what does it say? They believed. There are seven applications. One, Jesus is the only way to be saved. There's no other path to God except through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, his son, who is also God in the flesh. Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Hear this, hear this, unbelievers. If you don't know Jesus, hear this. You must have a personal conversion experience by faith in Jesus to receive the gift of eternal life. It does not matter what your bank account says, what your ethnicity is, what your status is, what your degrees say. The only way you can be saved is by means of trusting in Jesus by faith, believing that God offered him to die for your sin and that he raised him from the dead for your sin and giving your life to him. And if you want that gospel truth to receive life, you can have it today. So here's the invitation. Give your life to Christ. Don't you want to live? Don't you want to conquer the power of sin and death? Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is not promising you you will escape physical death. He is promising you you will escape eternal death. If you give your life to Christ today, you can be saved. Right now, second application, Jesus brings life out of death. 
Wherever his followers go, we take eternal life with us. So let me apply this in multiple ways. Let me, let me apply it vocationally. Regardless of where you are in life, you work from home, stay-at-home mom, you work in an office, regardless of what your job is, what your vocation is, is that you are bringing life as a follower of Jesus wherever you go so you can do your work well, right? Some of y'all work in spaces where you'll get fired if you talk about Jesus. Remember this, by the way, your job, unless you teach or work at a church or at a seminary, your, your job pays you not to witness but to work. Amen? So you have to be wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. And one way you can bring gospel life into your workspace that might be hostile for, uh, toward the gospel is by consistently doing your work well. Not per Nobody's perfect, right? But doing your work like a Christian would do his work. And when people say, hey, why are you doing your work like that? Why, why are you being faithful? You say, hey, I'll take you out for a cup of coffee after work, and I can tell you. And then you share the gospel with them. <laughs> When I worked at, I won't say the company, actually, I'm sorry, I almost said the company. When I worked at a company, <laughs> I had a lot of friends who rejected Jesus, but they loved me. And I had this ministry I called evangelistic lunches. I would invite my agnostic friend or my atheist friend out to Mr. Gaddy's buffet. <laughs> and I said, I'll pay for your lunch if you let me share Jesus with you. I said, Okay. So I pay for their lunch, and I just talk to them about Jesus for an hour or two, however many pieces of pizza they would eat. And to my knowledge, no one ever converted, but that's a ministry, isn't it? Where you're at work and someone starts talking to you about Jesus, you know, you have a job to do. You can say, hey, look, I want to honor Jesus by doing my work, but let's have lunch together. I'll buy your lunch, and I'll talk to you about Jesus. Be creative, right? Be creative. You teach your kids about Jesus. Be creative as you are taking life wherever you go. Students, school is coming, and you can bring life into your school context as you live in conformity with the gospel, not in conformity with your classmates who reject Jesus. You can be life and light in those spaces as you, yes, do your schoolwork well, but also as you show honor to your teachers, right? As you behave, right? As you don't give in to those temptations. I've said this before in the sermon. I know it's hard being a teenager. I know that. I don't know how hard it is for you because I was a teenager a long time ago. But I know it's hard. I have a teenager. So I'm not saying life is easy for you as a teenager if you follow Jesus. I am saying to you, you have eternal life in you. And that life is not just in you when you are at church. It is in you and with you when you go to school, when you take that exam, when you're faced with temptations. So tap into that life by the power of the Spirit and choose to show that life by how you live your life before your friends, in your school context, at your job. Same thing is true if you are a senior adult. There aren't a lot of senior adults here, but maybe you're in retirement and you're asking yourself, what, what's my purpose? Well, your purpose is, is to, as the old catechism says, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
And although you are retired and your kids are out of the home and you maybe are in the grandparent stage, life goes with you wherever you go. So look for ways to share that life and live that life in the real world. Third, Jesus Christ must raise the spiritually dead from the dead if we want to see dead sinners converted. You do understand this, right? It doesn't matter how articulate your theological subjects and verbs are in terms of people getting converted. Oh, yes, I want the theological subject and verbs to be in the right place. But my point is, is that you don't need an MDiv from Southern Seminary to see the Lord convert people. He can use you. By the way, if you want an MDiv for Southern Seminary, come and talk, talk with me about that. <laughs> We'd love to have you. DPJ and I will talk after the service with you. But my point is, is that it's not about how degreed up you are to bring life to those in darkness. It's about the Spirit of God using us in our brokenness to articulate the gospel with clarity so that he will open up the hearts of dead sinners and raise them from the dead. And if the Spirit does not raise people from the dead, people will not convert. It's not up to your pastors to convert anybody. We could not even convert ourselves. It's up to the resurrected Christ, exalting, God-glorifying spirit to work through the preaching of the gospel and through the living of the gospel. Maybe more specific. If we want our core values to be a reality and not just theory, the spirit needs to raise people from the dead, spiritually speaking. If we want to build a multi-ethnic kingdom culture that loves one another, that does life with one another, that weeps with one another, we need the Spirit to raise the dead. So pray for that. Pray for the Spirit to raise Christ-rejecting, godless hearts from the dead. And pray for the Spirit to use us as a means by which we love one another in all of our ethnic diversity and economic diversity by the power of the Spirit and look for ways to do that in the lives of people in this church. Or else we're no different than any other organization that just talks about diversity. What we are about is building a multi-ethnic kingdom culture, and you need the Spirit to do that. Amen? Fourth, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Five, don't be afraid to live for Christ. And six, don't be afraid to die in Christ. As I said earlier, I feel death approaching because I'm motor. And I do everything I can in my power to have a long and productive and fruitful life. But sometimes I get anxious about death because I've never died. And it seems so awful. But, but here's, here's the gospel, isn't it? I don't have to be afraid to live, and I don't have to be afraid to die in Christ. No, no, don't be stupid in how you live your life. Be wise and responsible and have boundaries. But live your life for Christ, and don't be afraid to die in Christ. Finally, Jesus enters our suffering 
with the promise of eternal life. So also we must enter into the suffering of those who suffer with the promise of eternal life. I don't know if you feel this way, but I think often it's a natural human reaction to to run away from people who suffer because we don't know what to say. We can't fix the problem. But I think Jesus reminds us that we enter in to the brokenness that people feel by being present and using our resources when we're able to be a means by which we can alleviate that suffering in as far as it's possible to do so. Does that make sense? Let me tell you a quick story and I'm finished. There's a famous New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee who died recently. Gordon was a famous scholar and contributed many things for in the field of New Testament studies. But, but there's a, a saying that is ascribed to him where he was telling his students in one lecture. He said, there's going to come a day when you hear that Gordon Fee is dead. But don't you dare believe it. Now you think about that. He meant that one day you'll hear that I've died. But those who die in Christ will live. Amen? Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day, and I hope a long time from now, when you're going to hear your friend Jarvis is dead. But don't you believe it. Oh, y'all come to my funeral. Pack out the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Alumni Chapel and do your sojourn midtown thing in that place for the glory of Jesus. And grieve. I want about three or four people passing out of my funeral because you're grieving so much. And I want to be long, too, like five hours. No, not that long. Grieve with joy. Knowing that the resurrection is coming. So when you hear that I'm dead, don't believe it. Because Jesus lives, his followers will live. As a popular song says, in Christ, death is crushed to death. And life is ours to live. Amen. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.